You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I invited expert value investors Tobias Carlisle. In the first part of the episode, we talk about the value that Tobias sees in home builders. And we also talk about what we think the true inflation is and how it has changed our investment strategy. In the second part of the discussion, I'm pitching Alibaba. This is a stock that Charlie Munker, Moniz Paprai, and Guy Spear have recently bought. And since then, the stock has dropped like a rock. Is this a falling knife or is this a major value opportunity? You don't want to miss out on this mastermind discussion. So without further delay, let's hop to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I am sort of here for the mastermind meeting, if I can call it like that. So, Preston isn't here because Preston is doing all his thing with Bitcoin. So he hasn't been a part of the group here for the past, I think, two times now. Hari had a last minute family emergency. And so if you can call Toby and me the mastermind group, what do you think, Toby? Can we call the mastermind group meeting just you and I? I think we should call it the mastermind group, but we should <laughs> uh, just point out it's just the two of us. <laughs> right. But we're still doing the same format. Like we both uh, had a pick prepared, something we want to talk about. And then perhaps we had something afterwards. We had a chance now, have time to, to chat about now without Preston, Hari taking up <laughs> all the talking. So, finally. You, right. Finally. Yes. We waited. Waited since 2015 to have this conversation, Toby. I think you've always been good starting out, you know, the rest of us being too nervous to, to get started. So, I know you want to talk about home builders, so I want to yeah. throw it over to, to you. Most folks will know that in the States, there was a, a home building boom through the first decade of the millennium, and that then resulted in a monster bust. And so there have been lots of movies made about that, you know, Mike Burry being featured in the big short because uh, he was trading the derivatives off those things. But basically... The bust was so devastating that the last decade, which is the second decade of the millennium, everybody has underinvested in home starts have been well below average. And we're only now, so we've got home start data going all the way back to 1959 in the States. And you can look at that and it's easy to see what happens. There's this sawtooth pattern where the market gets too hot probably. And then it crashes and it starts from a low base and it runs back up again until it gets too hot and then it crashes. And that pattern has occurred pretty consistently since 1959. What stands out about the most recent bust, which was the 2007-8-9 bust, was that the new starts fell to the lowest number that is in the data running back to 1959. And then the starts have run up at this much lower rate than they have in previous booms. So this boom has been going on for a little while, but it's it's still really only back to about the long run average. So the June data that we have is about 1,643. I think that's 1,000 starts. So I've been invested in the Acquirers Fund, which the ticker is ZIG. We've got exposure to a number of home builders, Pulte, DHI, which is DR Horton, and MTH, which is Meritage. I'm just going to talk today about Pulte for a variety of reasons. I think that it's the best of the, the three on some measures. 
the other two very good opportunities as well. I sort of think this is a, an industry that's got a secular tailwind behind it for the foreseeable five or 10 years. And if you're in the better, safer names, I think you're going to do pretty well. So my pick is Pulte and the tick is PHM. Pulte is it's about a $14 billion market cap as of today. It's de minimis net debt. They've got some debt, but they've got some cash balancing that debt against that. The company itself has been around for about 70 years and it's got this nice geographic diversification and it's got a nice price point in the homes that it builds. So half of its homes it builds for less than $400,000 or half the homes that it builds sell for less than $400,000. 75% of the homes sell for less than $500,000, which is around the medium, median, a little bit north of the median in the state. So they're, they're selling to, to the very to a very broad market of, of people. Last year, they did about $12 billion in revenues. And if you look back over the last sort of since the 2009 low, they've grown very consistently through that entire period. They've got a very solid balance sheet. And so the, the, the things that I really like about it, that, that very safe balance sheet, I think it's got one of the best balance sheets in the, in the industry. And it's also got these great gross margins. They make a lot of money and they keep a lot of money from each home that they build. So they've got the lowest debt to capital ratio in the industry. So just for those reasons, I think it's the safest It's the safest bet. I think it's one of the better builders out there. They know what they're doing. They're making lots of money. They've got this great geographic diversification. And I think that the industry tailwinds mean that these, you can almost pick whichever one you want, but I just pick the better, safer ones. I think that it'll do pretty well. For all of that, it's trading on a P of nine or below, depending on where you look. Acquire is multiple, which is my preferred measure, around seven. So I think it's a reasonable bet. It's got a little dividend yield of about a percent. They're reinvesting in in land and so on. So it's a, it's a business that I think will continue to grow, particularly if they get these if these secular tailwinds. So we've we've underinvested in housing for a decade. It looks like now that's starting to kick off as millennials transition into wanting suburban houses and they start having kids. We're short quite a few homes and we're going to have to build those over the next five or 10 years. So for me, I think the industry is likely to do well. I think this is one of the safer, better options in the industry, along with Meritage and, and D.R. Horton. And so I think that uh, it's suffered from that. So it, they have had this overhang. There's a record of people getting hurt in the equity. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is just, you know, the market has been a tech software as a service, high growth market for the last decade. So anything that is like this, that's, you know, reasonably capital intensive has suffered as a result. For those two reasons, I think that it's sort of, it's been overlooked. But for a variety, for, for some other reasons, I think it's sort of at this inflection point where it still looks reasonably valued. Even though you can have a look at the last decade, it's done on a stock price basis. Like since 2011, I think it ran from three bucks to about 53 bucks, 52 bucks today. So it's done pretty well over that decade, even though there hasn't been the sort of supply, there haven't been the sales of these houses that you might expect given the underlying demographics. So I think it, it's just one of those times where you sort of, you can't necessarily see it in the historical data. You just have to understand the underlying demand growth and the supply picture, the, the current supply picture. And what that means for the next five or 10 years is that there's going to have to be a lot of supply. There are a number of companies that are going to be beneficiaries of this. Pulte, I think, is one of them. And I, my bias is always towards the safer, better companies. You know, there are lots of different ways to play. You could play the marginal the more expensive ones that tail 
the end of the whip will sort of crack a little bit harder. But I, I just think that this is the safer, surer option. Pulte, any of these, any of those sort of three, but Pulte being my, my preferred one. So whenever I look at, at the numbers, I, ca- I can't help but think whether or not this is at the top of the cycle. And in all fairness, you know, that this, is, this is your pick, and, and I, I'm sure you I look at the top line and see how it's grown. Also keep in mind that we have this, this huge bust. I can see that you know, the gross margins are you know, slowly creeping up. It looks really, really nice. They're starting to pay out this dividend. It's a small dividend, call it 1% or so, but you know, that's trending upwards too. Strong balance sheet, all the things you want to see. And then you are seeing at you know, the TTM or the trading 12 month, you have $6.18. It might look like it's slightly more here whenever you do the next financial year. And then you're like, hmm, I wonder what the stock is trading at. You know, it should be probably be trading at, I don't know, 100 bucks or something like that. Probably north of 100 bucks. And it, today, here's 17th of August, it's trading at 54. The market just opened. And you're like, huh. And so sometimes whenever I've seen things like that, and I, I can tell that from, from bitter experience, sometimes I've seen numbers like this and perfect SAM with timing. Everyone else, it looks like knows that this is a cyclical stock and sometimes it looks really cheap, the airlines or whatnot. And then you see that bust and then you sort of like see that turn around. So I'm trying here to show, so for you, those of you who are not following this on YouTube, it doesn't really make any sense whenever I'm like drawing things in the air, but <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to like draw the, the boom and bust here. So how does the cyclicality then play into your, your thesis here, Toby? Certainly a cyclical. There's no question about that. The driver of the cycle is home starts. And you can pull this. This data is from the FRED, the Alfred website. If you just Google F-R-E-D, FRED, home starts or housing starts, it'll pull up this chart. And you can look at it, the data going back to 1959, and you can see this very distinct sawtooth pattern, as I was referring to earlier, that at the, at the very peak. So in, in 2007, I think we were doing, just from memory, we were doing something like 2,700 or 2,800 starts. And now, as of June, we did 1,600, and it bottomed at 478 starts in April 2009. And it's sort of, it's crept back up really, really slowly. If you look at the other boom periods, they, they ramp much more quickly, and they top out at a much, much higher number. To my eye, it looks like we're about mid-cycle. For those reasons that I identified before, I think that there's a little bit of an overhang because the GFC is still global financial crisis is still very fresh in the minds of a lot of investors. And it's just, it's a capital intensive business. You know, they, it's not software as a service. It's not a, as great a business as that. It's not a spectacular business like that, but it is entering into the second half of its cycle where it will become much more profitable. And it's going to look like a much better stock over the next few years. And I, I just think you're in this sort of little period now where you can get it at a reasonable valuation before it really does start to run. And then uh, you've probably got five or 10 years to, to sort of enjoy that. I still think these are very good businesses. I don't think you necessarily need to buy and sell them. I'm just saying at this point, it's, uh, it's pretty good risk reward. One thing, and you know me, Toby, I always like to play devil's advocate. Even if, whenever you bring these awesome picks to the group, you're like, hmm, why are you so negative? But we always wanted to like figure out the negative before uh, we make that major investment. But how about inflation? Does that play into your thesis in any kind of way? I would, I would imagine that it's a relatively capital intensive being a home builder company. Having your profits you know, saved up in old dollars, having to pay in new dollars. Could you talk to me about like the cash flow, the inflation? Do you even yeah, see I inflation think, being an issue? 
The sensitivities for home builders are interest rates. So as interest rates go up, home prices have to come down because people can't borrow as much to pay for the homes. But that's why it's important that this has two two important qualities to it. One is that it's got the geographic diversification, so it's not concentrated in any particular market that might be hot or you know might miss out completely on on what's happening. And the price points are material to it. Under four hundred thousand dollars for a little bit over half of their homes, and under five hundred thousand dollars for seventy five percent of their homes. They're in that part of the market where there is a great deal of demand. And if you work out the interest rate impact on those homes, interest rates going up a few percent, maybe running back to like the long run average, it, it adds like fifty to seventy five dollars a month in in terms of cost of, of owning the house. So I think that millennials, you know, I've I've gone through this experience over the last five years where one kid you can live in an apartment. Two kids, you can't really live in an apartment, and three kids, you have to have a house. I'm not saying nobody's rushing out there to get to have three kids. That's that's a lot of kids, but two kids is probably need a house. And I think millennials are going through that that process now, where you discover that you can't stay in an apartment. You need to move out into the burbs. You need a backyard. And I think that that demographic shift as they start as they start buying houses, and that by the way, that has an impact on a lot of other industries too. That will show up in furniture, and it will show up in places that supply stuff for the home, like Williams-Sonoma and those kind of businesses, which, which is another interesting one that I, that, I, that I like too. I remember, you know, back in the good old day, the good old day here two or three mastermind groups ago, and we were like four people and, well, we were still recording, but we took that out afterwards. You know, you, you and Preston were like going head to head in terms of inflation. And, you know, at the time, you know, Preston was saying, you know, he looks very much at the money supply and you're like, yeah, I, I don't think inflation is, is that high. I think in relation to your pick, it's really important to understand since it's so interest rate sensitive. And so we can probably just lead out by saying, you know, if, if you have a high inflation, then generally you would like to, to increase rates uh, if you're the Fed because you want to put a damper on, on inflation. And so that would be, that would have detrimental effect on, on, on a company like Vietnam. So the 10 year at the moment is about 1.3%, which is a historically quite a low yield. Long run average is about 6%. Recently, though, that is a reasonably high yield. Over the last 12 months, it got down. I think it got under 60 bips, which is 0.6% through the middle of the, the, the 2020 drawdown. So it's run up quite a bit, and that has coincided with value stocks doing much better. So this is why I watch it so closely, because value will do better as inflation kicks up a little bit, because the underlying cash flows become much more valuable as inflation kicks up. Now, you look at inflation estimates. So we're the last print that I saw was 5.4%. You contrast yep. that with 1.3% on the 10-year. That means that the real yield is negative 4.1%. It's very hard for bondholders. Bondholders are losing 4.1% you know, a year. If, this, if nothing changes, they go on to lose 4.1% a year, which is chewing up a lot of capital year on year. You cannot sustain that for very long. So one of two things has to happen. Either that inflation print is completely wrong and it's all transitory and it's as a result of a low base in 2020. It's going to look much different when everything calms down and the supply all goes back to normal because we also had that quarantine, the shutdown, everything stopped and got rebooted and it's had this crazy prices and lumber, which is an input into housing, has gone absolutely bananas. It ran up and then it's run back down again. A lot of commodities look the same or rates go up. Very hard for rates to go up because the government, the federal government here is carrying a lot of debt. So there's a point at which 
the interest rates start impacting the government's ability to make its payments. So I don't think the, the Fed's going to be like the, the Japanese central bank. They're not going to let the rates run up, but it may mean that we have this very high rate of inflation and interest rates pinned low. So I have no idea. That's, that's a scary kind of thought. That's, that's like a 70s stagflation style environment, which I think is that there's a reasonable chance that we are in that or going into that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So whenever you say inflation is understated, you know, it, we had this, um, just recently, I, was, I had this uh, interview with Colin Roach, our masterclass in inflation, and, and we talked a lot about like how he defined it. We had multiple really, really smart people, including Colin Roach, on the podcast to talk about how they at inflation, how they define it. And it's very different. Most people agree that it's not CPI, it's not what comes out, but 
you would have people who are saying, you know, M2 or like, it will be all over the place. I'm curious to hear like, what are your thoughts on that, Toby? What is the inflation number? Not necessarily a specific number. If you can say 2.23, that's fine. <laughs> but like, how, how do you look at that? The CPI is the consumer price index is one measure of inflation, but it is not inflation itself. So that's the way I think about it. So the CPI is this chained basket of prices where they look at from period to period and compare to the last period and look at the change in the, the price of the goods in that basket to give you a sense of what inflation might be. And it's geographic. I think they drill down to the city level, at least the state level. The problem that I have with it, and I think a lot of other people have with it, is the, these hedonic adjustments that they make. I think in some instances, the hedonic adjustments are fair, and in other instances, they are not. So the hedonic adjustment is if steak gets too expensive, yeah, well, there are substitutions as well. So if steak gets too expensive and you would substitute mince for steak, which might be cheaper, then that reduces the, the CPI doesn't reflect that increase in steak prices, which just seems insane to me that it does that. It also excludes energy and it excludes housing, which are two pretty big price uh, cost centers in most people's lives. And then they make these hedonic adjustments. So televisions have got you know better resolutions and bigger and televisions that were extraordinarily were $20,000 televisions 20 years ago. You probably just about get them for like a hundred bucks now. And a, a really good big TV might be a few thousand dollars. So that the CPI has to adjust for that somehow. Computers get more expensive, cars get better, TVs get better. And so they make these hedonic adjustments for those things. Whether all of that is warranted or not, I think it muddies the picture a little bit, makes it, makes it a little... I don't know why the, why the Fed gets the benefit of the technological advances that folks make to pin down the CPI. The CPI is an imperfect measure of it. And it seems to always sort of slightly understate the true rate of inflation. And the reason is that there are a lot of government prices that are chained to CPI. And so they don't want to, they want to reduce their, their payouts for various of these things. And so keeping a low CPI, understating CPI is to their advantage. And so that's why CPI tends to be understated. So I don't think CPI is a true reflection of inflation. There are other competing services out there like shadow stats, which uses the 1970s definition of inflation. And they've always got it running at 10% plus. There was this MIT billion price project, I think it was. And for a long time, that showed it was running really, really hot. And so then they went in and they fixed it with air quotes so that it no longer runs really, really hot. And then there are, there are some other woods like slightly mangle this name, but there's a Cottonwood Index, Chatwood Index, which is now gone from the internet and scrubbed from the internet. But the Chatwood Index tracked for each city the amount of money that a family spends, actually spends on, on various things. And it was running very, very hot. It was sort of like 10 or 11% a year. So it's a very political argument. So basically, your politics determine which index you prefer to believe. And if you, if you say that you're like Chatwood or Shadow Stats, you're making a declaration that you're, you're sort of outside of the mainstream. And if you, if you prefer the CPI, you're very inside the mainstream. I just sort of, I don't know which one's true. I think CPI is probably understated. The other ones, maybe they're slightly overstating it. I'm not sure. Probably somewhere in the middle. It doesn't really change. The real measure of it is ultimately probably going to be the 10 year or something like that, because the just bond buyers won't sit in stuff that's constantly chewing up their capital. So I think that you probably see the 10-year has to run up a little bit through here. And I, I think fair value for it's probably 1.5% now, probably look more like 2% at the end of the year. And if it does that, that's going to be interesting to see the impact on some of the tech stocks. 
you know, it's always a lost cause to talk about what the Fed's going to do and, and, you know, where do, we, where do we see the interest rate going? You know, there's so much at play here. We talked about entitlements and, you know, why, perhaps why the government wants to peg the uh, inflation low. Do you see interest rate going up because of inflation going up here, as people have been talking about for a long time now? Knowing, obviously, also that the, the inflation number you, you, you see now is because of the base effects to some extent from, from last year. Base effect meaning that you saw these deflationary pressures uh, in 2020 because of COVID. And so there've been a lot of talks on those two hikes in 2022, perhaps already, instead of 2023. Like, how do you see that discussion whenever you, you look at your own portfolio, whenever you look at PSM? Is that something you pay attention to at all? Not really, honestly, because I just think it's too hard to predict. There's that Peter Lynch line where he says that 15 minutes spent worrying about macro is 15 minutes too much or something like that. I like talking about it and I like thinking about the impact that it could potentially have on the portfolio, but I don't make any investment decisions based on it because I just know that I'll be wrong and I don't want it to influence what I do in the portfolio. Portfolio is always going to be concentrated into the, the cheapest things in the market because I think that that's an evergreen strategy. It just makes logical sense to me that if you can buy cheap cash flows, then you should do that. And over time, if you, you know, they do other things like buyback stock over time, that will be reflected in the value of the of the, the share price. There will be better times for that strategy and worse times for that strategy. And it turns out that when the market is very bullish, when there's a lot of capital around, that strategy doesn't do very well because the sort of the constraints that I impose on it, which is that they don't raise a lot of external money. They're sort of internally funded for the most part buying back stock and they tend to be more mature companies. They're not at that very fast rate of growth. They're still very good companies, I think, very good businesses, but they're at that slower rate of growth. And so they're less just less attractive to people who are actively searching for growth. And you know, I've written some books about it's a little counterintuitive that if you really want portfolio growth, place to find it is not necessarily in revenue growth. It's it's in slower growing businesses that can pull other levers and cause their earnings and cash flow to grow very rapidly buyback stock, which causes the share price to grow very rapidly. That's sort of the way that I approach the problem. And then the interest rates, just the only impact of the interest rates is whether that will then make my portfolio take off, whether it'll be this sort of, this part of the cycle where it's been a little bit more expensive. The recent, you know, the 2020 drawdown and the, that sort of seems to have signaled a return, I think over the last sort of six to 12 months to a more traditional value strategies do seem to be working a little bit better in this market. And you can look at ARK perhaps as a representative of, that's Kathy Woods, A-R-K-K, as a representative of the flashier techie stocks has struggled since February and is down pretty materially since February. Whereas Berkshire Hathaway perhaps as a representative of a collection of value stocks has done much better over the last six to 12 months. Interest rates and inflation going up will tend to benefit value stocks. So I'm probably a little bit biased that I, I'm always like looking for that in the market, even though I do think that that's sort of manifesting now. I do think you can see that in the market. I'm just sort of one person. What do you think? Are you, what, do you see inflation? Is it understated? Yeah, well, it depends on which number we are looking at. <laughs> you know, I, I think you're right. It's probably higher than those, you know, 5.4 that came out last month. And is it Which like, is a high print. It is. It is. Is it one-to-one with, with the money supply and with a lot of people, especially in the Bitcoin space, they're talking about, you know, you're chasing the same goods and, and you're pulling that lever. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I can easily see why you would make that argument because it does sound intuitive. I think it's also important to understand that 
it's at interest rate zero. And so you have to pull all the levers. And so it's a derivative of that number. So there's a lot of money effect put out into the system whenever you lower the interest rate, which might just look different from an M2 perspective compared to all the quantitative easing that you're now seeing. And so you see these, these crazy numbers and you're talking about, oh, that you mean X, Y, C for the, for the asset prices. So I don't necessarily see that as the case, but I do want to say that inflation has had an impact on how I invest. I don't know if it's just a natural progression of, of getting more experience with, with investing, but I would say that probably in 2017, 18, I s- sort of started to think differently about holding my cash position. Before then, you know, I've, I've learned from Warren Buffett, just like I guess most people listen to this podcast and him and especially Tom Munger, they talked about having cash lying around and you know, always be, be ready to, to pull the trigger on something that's really cheap. And I, I did that. I did that for many years and of course, lost something in opportunity cost. I also hit a few home runs. So it wasn't all bad, but like whenever the market just rallied and you're like 30% in cash or whatnot, everything else equal, that's just not beneficial for you. And so whenever I saw that inflation, whenever I, it was probably around this 17, 18, like you, whenever you're saying, oh, I'm two, that's probably like, you know, overstatement and, you know, CPI is probably understatement. I, I would agree with that. I quickly came up with the conclusion that even if it was 5% or something like that, which it wasn't at the time, but even if it was 5%, that's a huge opportunity cost that I had to beat. And it just made sense for me always to be invested in quote-unquote something. Obviously, I wanted to be something that was cheap, something that was a good investment, all that stuff. But it always made sense for me not to have cash around. One of the things that, that you told me, Toby, really, at the time where I remember we talked about you know, Warren Buffett, you and I, and like how we talked about, oh, being 70% in, in one stock, what's wrong about that? <laughs> you know, If you have a high conviction, you know, put 70% into something that's a really good business and that's cheap and you'll make a lot of money. And you said, we always have to think about, is this statement true? And you said, for Warren Buffett, yeah, perhaps it is true. It's true for me, Toby, it's not. I might paraphrase, so please tell me if I'm, if I'm like putting... No, that's right. <laughs> so I thought a lot about that and I was like, yeah, Buffett is right and Toby is right and I don't anyway think that I'm as good as an investor as, as you and I'm, I'm sure they're not as good an investor as Buffett. So I was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be 70% in anything, which it wasn't at the time, but it really made me think and become really humble about not understanding macro to the extent that I wanted to. And I would also say not understanding micro to putting something like 70% into, into one pick. At that time, as with, I guess, many other investors, I had some hits, I had some misses. And it was just one of those where I, I pivoted to this. I always wanted to, I don't want to build positions more than 10%, but also let it run if, if I ride on that pick. And so it also made me realize now that I'm putting myself where I would lose some of the potential upside in not putting more than 10% into one pick, assuming that was, it was the right one. Well, I would also lose some of that just from not being Warren Buffett, a great investor, because that opportunity cost for me is much more expensive, not because I can't make Warren Buffett returns, but because I can't pick the same stocks. And so I was like, okay, let's say, let's say worst case, 5%. Okay, you lose 5% with when you have 30% of your portfolio, 1.5% you're losing every single year. I guess that's sort of like how I'm looking at inflation and sort of like why I'm now thinking about opportunity cost and I'm missing out on some of the best gains by not being as aggressive as it used to be. But I also feel that 
it's been quite profitable by not by always being invested. And of course, you can argue, well, you know, the last four years won't be like the next four years, but just from doing that, you know, that's one point five percent. Assuming that's you know you have five percent inflation, and the, and the market has a lot more than that. So let me throw it over, over to you again. That does make sense to me in the sense that. Yeah, so you've got this 1.05% of whatever cash you're holding as being purchasing power of that is going down year on year. The only thing that I'd say is that the last, it's been a very long time since we've had a genuine bear market and the market is expensive at the moment. It's ahistorically high. Really, the only times that it's been higher than this is the dot-com boom bubble right at the very top last few months. We're at 39, I think on a shiller P last time I looked, it's been as high as 44 at the very peak in 2000. And then the market didn't do anything for a very long period of time. So having said that, I've done lots of testing about what strategies tend to work. Carrying cash just does tend to reduce your returns, just to the extent that the lower your exposure to the market, whatever return you're getting, you're going to get a lower return than that over time. And you're assuming that you can deploy it all when the market goes down. You have, you know, it's scary when the market goes down like that, that you'll have the presence of mind and the fortitude to get fully invested. I just know myself that I don't have that. And so I have a different approach to money management, to holding money, waiting for those sort of times. I I run a short book as well as a long book and I carry some cash. And just by virtue of the fact that that one side of the book is working and one side of the book isn't, I'm always rebalancing towards the thing that's not working. Um, So I'm putting more money to work, either long or short as the market's moving around. And that's how I sort of get around it. But I have some sympathy for that view that there really is an opportunity cost holding cash, particularly when the rates are so low. You know, we're previously in 2000 rates for at 6%. If you didn't want to participate in the market at a 44 times Schiller Kate, which the inverse of that is about 2%, you know, you don't want to get a 2% yield and go and get 6% in the 10 year. And that's something that tends to rally if there's a crash. So you were paid to wait and you had this tail risk protection holding that. Now that's a different story. You got 1.3%, which is below the rate of inflation. So you're compelled to be exposed to equities in that market. That's the explicit policy of the Fed is to induce risk-taking by investors, which is why we have a stock market where it's at and we have interest rates where they are. You can't get enough return from the safe stuff and you're forced into the market. And so that creates, I think, this sort of crazy behavior in the market where you know we've got these tokens and the NFTs and those sort of things. I don't know that the use case for those has been fully proven out. There may be one eventually. I just, at this, as where it stands now, I, I don't want to go and put my money into those things when I can find a company that produces goods and makes a profit, generates free cash flow and pays that out to, to shareholders. That just seems to me like a, an easier way of doing it. We probably talked like 20 times here on the show or, or something like that. We always talk about the market being expensive. You know, and, and it has been. It's been expensive since 1996. Right, right. So it's unbelievable. And I think it was Benjamin Graham who said something like, yeah, I had a good track record, but I only had four decades or something. I should have a much longer track record to prove. I can't remember. It was something like that. Perhaps it was five. But you know, you're like, okay, right. I shouldn't be looking at the past four years or two decades or, or whatnot. It's unbelievable how long it's been. it's been expensive. And so one of the things I've been, I've been puzzled about is, you know, I've, I've looked at different uh, value ETFs and very often, most of them are US-based only. And some of them are international. And then in that case, it's typically, it's typically only international. Why is it that if you have a value ETF that you don't have a global value ETF, why is that not more common? 
It would include the US and international. Probably that's driven by just the investment choices of US investors want a US-focused ETF. And there are lots of US investors around. So you can make a business with a US-focused investment, with a US-focused ETF. And then if you already have US exposure, when you go to set up your next ETF or your next fund, you don't want to double up on the US exposure. So you get international exposure to complete your own exposure. But I agree with you. It's, it's an imperfect way of doing it because there are Globally, the US has lots of really good consumer discretionary companies that just don't really exist anywhere else in the world. So you would a global portfolio will be reasonably heavily weighted towards US companies anyway. And so an international portfolio just gives other countries a better showing in the portfolio. You, you, you get more exposure to if you just exclude like the 45% of the market, which is what the US S&P 500 represents, I think, or the US market is like 45% of the market. If you exclude that, you're just going to get a better concentration of international. But I agree. And I, I, this, is, this is why I'm pretty eager to talk about your pick. Buffett gave this great, at, his, at the last meeting, he put up these two slides and he said in, in 1989, I think it was, this is what the 20 biggest companies in the world look like. I think it was something like that. There were a lot of Japanese companies in there. There were a lot of US companies in there and there wasn't much of anybody else. And then he replicated that slide as at 2021 and it was dominated by US companies. So it was maybe one Japanese company in there and there were a handful of Chinese companies in there. And I think if you wind that forward 30 years, probably what that will look like is it'll be dominated by Chinese companies. There'll be quite a few American companies in there and there probably won't be much of anything else. And so I think if you're an investor thinking about the next three decades, so you probably should be looking at China. When you do that, there are some phenomenal businesses in there. And this might be an unusually good time for it because the regulatory changes have resulted in all of those tech stocks getting absolutely smashed to smithereens. And so I know, I know what your pick is. Right. <laughs> My pick is Alibaba. And I'm not necessarily saying it, it's your traditional value pick. And so perhaps it was a bit misplaced whenever I, I asked you about that in, in terms of ETF. I guess just from, from being like a big universe like US stocks, you can't obviously find value picks, but that's just how it is. But at the same time, you know, if, if, I, if you look at our tool, GP Finance, we have 23 developed markets in there. The US, the most expensive. And so you're fishing where the fish are not. It's a big pond though. <laughs> like the US is the biggest pond, but they're not a good water to fish ratio. I don't know if this is correct English. <laughs> You're quoting a Charlie Munger. I know he's got, he's got a, p- a position in Alibaba too. So that's why, I mean, I've looked at quite a few of these stocks now. I think Alibaba's interesting, Tencent's interesting, JD.com. There's a whole lot of really interesting Chinese stocks in there. And you know, that, that is all specifically why I wanted to talk about Alibaba because it was one of the stocks that I find particularly interesting and I think I understand better than a lot of the other Chinese picks. And that was actually to, to tie it into back what we talked about before and having that in the ETF. And I'm, I'm not trying to say run out and start, start an international ETF after this. It's just one of those I'm like, I just see a lot of value there, but it's hard to get to. Just never mind that I live in Europe and it has to be specifically you know, certified here in Europe. So it's even harder here, but like even in the States. That's like the ETF, yeah. Right. The Chinese value, Chinese slash Indian value ETF for all of us who can see the value there but can't access them and don't feel too comfortable about going to this huge, but to us, weird-looking Chinese or Indian company. And so, anyways, I wanted to, to talk about Alibaba today. I actually already pitched that back in Q1 2019. And at the time, Alibaba was trading around 170, I want to say. 
it's almost back to that today, actually. <laughs> and these are one of the few lucky breaks I have here in, in my life. I, I sold it earlier this year and it was... Did you sell it pre-Munger? Yes. Or post-Munger going into it? Pre-Munger. And so it doesn't make me feel good whenever I sell something that Munger buys. Except in this very specific case, where it seemed to be, it seemed to be fantastic. So I decided to liquidate my entire position. It was sort of like a few reasons. One of them was my wife and I were, were moving, bought a new place, so I needed to, to have some funds. And the other one was that I wanted to just liquidate the entire portfolio because at the time I felt like Berkshire was probably undervalued by 30 or 40%. And so it was just one of those where I'm like, yeah, Alibaba trading at 250, 300, whatnot. It actually didn't seem overvalued to me, but it just seemed like, yeah, it might be fairly valued. Definitely didn't feel like it was like undervalued at that point. So knowing that we have to raise funds, tax stuff, Berkshire being just slightly more attractive, I just liquidated it. And again, talk about ball lock than scale, because not only has uh, Berkshire gone up, that's actually not what I've been most excited about, but Alibaba just blew up. And, you know, it wasn't because Xi Jinping called me and said, I'm going to crack down on Chinese tech. It wasn't anything like that, but it has just plummeted, right? I think it's like, what, 175 or something right now. The market just opened and... Did you sell it because it was expensive? What was the reason for selling? You well, thought it had grown, gone too far? No, you know, at the time, it was just, just seemed to me it was, it was fairly valued. And then going back, I needed to sell some stocks to, for the down payment for a new condo. I could easily see myself hold on like if we move next year instead. It was the or the closest to fair value in your portfolio, so you wanted to ship the thing that was yeah. closest to fair value. Since then, you know, the Chinese government has just been hitting big tech hard. Educational companies that decree that they can't be profitable. So you can imagine what that had done to the share prices of, of, of those. And then you had investors like Charlie Munger, who bought in in Q1 already. I think Monis Popright did it at the same time. Monis Popright added here in Q2. Guy Spear built a new position. And they probably bought in the 210, 230, perhaps a bit higher, especially for, for Munger that came in a little, little earlier. So they bought in that range. So the stock trading at called 175, just, I'm not saying that you go just go out and buy it, but it definitely makes you, you wonder if there's, if there's value there. And so I did take a very small position. I think it's, it's one of the things I always like to put up as a disclaimer. I was thinking actually at the time, it was like lower than 200. And I was like, yeah, why don't I just buy a few? Yeah. So I have this thing where I buy very little stock in a company. It was le- it's less than 1%. Just because I, I don't know if it's just me getting lazy or what's happening, but I have a hard time sitting through earnings calls and reading 10Qs and, and 10Ks if I don't have a little skin in the game. Even if it's very, very little, it's just like a mental thing. I just absorb things differently. And so I decided to do that. I kind of felt like at 200 or 198, which was I, I bought a very small, less than 1% position. It makes sense to buy a little bit. And then because it's optically cheap and you've got lots of good signals, Charlie Munger owns it, Lee Lu owns it. There are a few other investors in there too who you didn't mention who I know who are very well respected who picked up. It makes more sense to buy a little position than it does to go and buy your whole position before you've done your research. So you bought, that's appropriate, right? Buy a little position because those are good signals. It's cheap. Charlie Munger's bought it, so on. Now you go and do the real work to determine whether you're going to ramp it up to a full position or not. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. 
For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. So let's revisit Alibaba here in Q3 2021. Massive company, right? 1.18 billion active customers. Just think about that. If we break that down into four different business units, 87% of revenue comes from core commerce. So that's the primarily the Chinese e-commerce through Taobao. You can think of Alibaba if you're not 
if you don't know too much about the company, perhaps if it's one of the first time you're you're hearing about this, just think about it as the Amazon of of China with lots of localized tweaks. It's different, but you can buy everything just like you can on 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 Amazon. Eight percent of revenue comes from Alibaba Cloud. This is the segment you better watch out for. We've seen just last quarter, year over year for the June quarter, twenty nine percent growth, and this was actually quite disappointing growth because. They lost uh, ByteDance, the owner of TikTok. So if you adjust for that, we're much, much more than than twenty nine percent. So if you actually looked at it and took that out, and you look at it year over year, we're close to fifty percent. So it's now a ten billion dollars business unit with a lot of growth ahead. If you look at the global market share for the Alibaba Cloud, it has around six percent, and that makes it the fourth largest market share in cloud computing. So it's trailing Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. I would also argue that for the time being, Alibaba is not really competing in the West for cloud computing. Just like you would say, Google is not competing too much in in China. I would rather say that you divide up between East and the West, and you might even just say to China, Alibaba by far is the most dominant player, and they have three times the market share as as Tencent Cloud. If you look into some of the stats, Asian companies prefer Asian providers. I would imagine it's the same here in in the West. You know, we we had to decide on. Just internally in company on a, on a cloud service, we looked at I want to say four or five, all of them were American. It wasn't even like it was conscious thing. It's just one of those things like where do you want to store data? I don't want to store it in China. I don't think we even made that analysis. I think it's something that's that's a conscious. I would argue that you would see a very very high growth in Asia, specifically China, probably more than in the West, where Alibaba would just have that first mover advantage and the ecosystem around it. You can say. To some extent, the same for for Tencent. The cloud business, as much as it's eight percent of the revenue, it doesn't make a lot of profit. It just turned a profit though, but the, it's not the most profitable unit. It's, it's all about growth right now. Then you have three to four percent of the revenue. That's the digital platform, entertainment, and video. So the crown jewel here is Yoku.、Uh, you can think of it as a hybrid between YouTube and Netflix. They have a, more than a half a billion. Users, which makes it the third largest in China, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't make it the biggest. <laughs> Both Baidu and Tencent actually have bigger providers, and then you have Alibaba Pictures and other entertainment. They also have gaming. They have a different, a few different things in this unit. It's not profitable. It's growing a decent clip, around twelve percent a year right now. But we do see some growth on on that. And then they have less than one percent is something called Innovations Initiative and others. The best way to think about this is similarly to other bets for Google. So you can think of as Alibaba has like a small army of companies that are not generating any revenue, or they have a big risk of failing. But you have a lot of potential upside in that too. If when they become profitable, it will be broken out, just like Waymo was one broken out, YouTube was one broken out in Google's、uh, statements. The way that Alibaba operates. Is that they generally take large or controlling stakes in acquisitions, and they do not consider themselves an investment company. So this is this is different than Tencent. They have a very mindset of investing in a bunch of different businesses, and then they're an investor. They made a a significant investment in Pinduoduo, Tencent here. I'm talking about, and they them use their ecosystem. It's a way of growing too, but they're investors.、And、yes, they are on the board. But they're not operating the company. Alibaba has a has a different mindset. If you look at at the valuation, and then we can perhaps afterward go back and have a have a conversation about everything that's going on with with the regulation, which is just a just a big mess right now. 
if you look at the valuation, what is Alibaba worth? And it's a tough question. I can come up with a range between $250 and $350, perhaps. This is for a stock that's trading at called $175, but it's hard. And you can argue for an even wider range. It's trading at 20 times free cash flow. Is that cheap for a company that's been growing earnings per share on average for the past three years of 30%? Yeah, it's pretty cheap, right? And it's not 30% in total, it's 30% annually. You have a company here with revenue over the trading 12 months that is 40%, and over the past five years, it's averaging 47%. Like 47%. You can argue that in the world where the interest rate is zero, this is a, and it's a company, we, we go back to the discussion about inflation, you know, it, by nature, it has a inflation protection, like that's, that's in the nature of, of the business, meaning you don't have all those capital expenditures, you don't have to lay the tracks for your railroad or, or whatnot. Let's flip it. Let's say you have a company that's trading at 20 times free cash flow. You have an unpredictable and totalitarian government. Is that cheap? No, it's actually quite expensive whenever you have like a big unknown like the Chinese government. It's hard. What I would suggest that people do is, I guess, as with all stocks, come up with different scenarios, assign percentages to that, and then discount those cash flows back. That was my pick, Toby. I want to throw it over to you for any questions, thoughts uh, on this pack. I really like it. I've got some real questions. The questions are, what is the impact of these regulatory changes on Barber? That's the first question. It's not pretty. If you might remember, and financial, really something everyone talked about in the financial world, which was not fully owned by Alibaba, but Jack Ma was a controlling shareholder and Alibaba had made a major investment. At the time, I think it was valued of more than $100 billion. And they had an IPO where I think the goal was to raise $37 billion, something like that. It was a massive, massive company. And all of a sudden, it just stopped. Like the regulators just said, nope, you can't do that. And since then, they've started to force and financial to open up to some of that data. So all of that hasn't been played out, but they want the government want access to that data. And they also want rivals to be able to purchase that data in a marketplace. And it hasn't really been figured out. And then what's the price? And is it all data? Is it some data? And, but it's not pretty. And so this is my long in the way of saying, I don't really know what the entire impact is. And it seems like the market doesn't really know either, but they're not, they don't like it. I don't think that you won't see like they did with the educational sector where they just said, no, you know, you can't really <laughs> make a profit anymore. I don't see that happening. Again, I would never have thought they would come out and say, no, these businesses can't make a profit anymore. It is definitely a major risk. Do you know what drove the, the changes? What was the rationale? Or what was the reason that the government give for the changes? They said that uh, the party line <laughs> was something like, we want more social equality. They wanted uh, not just social uh, quality, but they also want uh, better competition. They wanted to curb the market powers. And so this is something generally that people, and whenever I say people, the population likes to hear. Like, just like here in the West, in China, they're also afraid of you know, companies collecting their data and, and what they would do about it. But I, th I think it also served a different purpose. If you look at, you know, the country is just so, so different, right? 
you have Xi Jinping, the president, who have sort of he changed the legislation in terms of of how China is now ruled, and it seems like he's more or less giving himself infinite runway to to steer the country in whatever direction he wants to do. I think one of the one of the issues was that he saw potential rivals, and he saw potential rivals that didn't necessarily like the Chinese regime. Jack Ma would be the poster boy for for that. He he sort of disappeared from the public eye for called four six months or so, and he came back a lot more humble. Like he was quite an open critic, especially for a Chinese prominent person, and he came back speaking very differently about the Chinese government. Not long after that, I think it was only like within three or four months after that, you had two very prominent people in China that uh, removed themselves from from the public. One of them was the founder of Pinduoduo, Kuan Kuang. But also the founder of ByteDance,、um, uh, who owns、uh, TikTok, and so I think it was also a signal that he is in control. I think it, I think it's a it's a power play. If you look at the legislative body, like you have so many wealthy people, but if you look at the 83 wealthiest from NPC and CPPCC, so you can basically look at this as legislative body. They're basically delegates. They have an average wealth of 3.35 billion dollars. And this is like I wouldn't call them admin workers because that would probably be like the the wrong thing to say. But like these are the people like on Xi Jinping's side who are running this this country.、Uh, they are determining the laws. In comparison, if you look at the U.S. Congress, and don't feel sorry for the people in the U.S. Congress. If you look at the eighty three richest members, they have an average wealth of fifty six point four million dollars. <laughs> That's still a lot of money. But whenever you compare it to, you know, what is that sixty times what they have in China, and so it's just, I think it was one of those power plays more than, I wouldn't say more than anything else, but I definitely thought that that played in. Yeah, so that's sort of、uh, that. The next question was, what does that mean for the regulatory landscape more generally? So it just means that probably it's a little bit more. Unpredictable is that fair, or, or that there's potential for more of this? How does it differ from? You see, in the states, look, if a company gets too big in the states, so Microsoft had antitrust legislation against it in the early 2000s, or antitrust action against it rather, and you know there's sort of rumblings now in the states, and there has been for about five years about the bigger tech companies here that they may have too much market power, or they may be collecting too much data, they're exercising some censorship. How is it different from you know nothing's happened in the states, so it's it's purely theoretical, but What's the difference between the two? Speed and magnitude, I would say. Let's take Google, for instance. Sued last October 2020 by the DOJ and 11 states for、uh, monopolistic abuse, and it's only been for the search business, not for anything else. That will come before 2023. In comparison, if you look at what happened with Alibaba, and not just like stopping Ant Financial like from one day to the next, like their IPO, it took less than four months to slap a 2.8. Billion dollar fine on the company and open them up to to sharing data and so I guess I I see this differently than whenever I, I read through all my all my notes here、uh, from 2019. I typically for these mastermind meetings I I typically prepare between like eight and twelve pages something like that. Luckily I don't go through all of them because I think people would be bored. <laughs> But like I was just at the time writing. This is what I'm thinking. This is the outlook. And I remember one of the one of the things I wrote was. Thereby, Alibaba has a significant advantage to the U.S. because they are allowed to collect data, 
and they can collect more of them and they will cooperate with the Chinese government. So they would have a leg up because it's a global power play to be the, the front runner in, in AI, for instance. And now I guess I, I think differently about it. I, I still think that, you know, obviously the Chinese government will still like collect that data and figure out what, what to do about it. But I'm not sure that big tech in China have the same advantage as I used to think. I think they have the advantages in the sense that they are allowed to collect more data than in the West. The individual company probably wouldn't have the same moat as I thought they would. Chinese companies aggregate probably still have a moat compared to what's happening in, in the US. Simply to operate on the Chinese market, you need to give green light to different types of, of data collection and to different types of IP which you don't have to do in, in the States, for instance, if you come as, as a Chinese company, at least not yet. And so the Chinese government just have, and especially if they now force companies to share them, like they will merge one or two or how many winners who will then figure out what to do with that, with that data. And so collectively, it might be an advantage for the individual company, in this case, Alibaba. I don't necessarily think that the advantage is as big as I, as I used to think. Whenever we look at this as investors and we're like, yeah, we, we don't, we might not care about you know, politics or whatnot, but we are, we're going to, to where the value is. I sort of like see it as the, as the opposite of other bets. You, know, you have this other bets, which you know, for uh, Alibaba would be something like Ding Ding, for instance, uh, which is like a workspace corporation tool. But like, you can think of this as what Google had with other bets, with all these you know, deep mind and all that cool stuff, where you would say it's really difficult to value what all that is worth. They're not generating too much revenue. How profitable will it be? They're actually just burning cash, but it probably has some value. It would be weird if it didn't have any value. So you might be willing to pay a bit more for the rest of the company. You would probably need to understand, in, say in Google's case, you would need to understand like the advertising space pretty well, because that's how they make money in terms of search. And I, I would say, to, um, to go back to Alibaba, just like I would pay more for the e-commerce and cloud business, because that's clearly going to be profitable. And it's, it's easy, especially for the e-commerce business to figure out what that's worth. I'd probably pay a bit more from that because of other bets. Then I would also say I would pay a little less because of these regulatory pressures. And so it's a bit more art than science. I think that's what the late Runsworth would call in known unknown. We definitely know it's, it's an issue with tech. And, and the, uh, the installation you're seeing right now that's being taped around it, it's just too hard to tell how bad it would be. When I look back over where it has traded over the last five years, this is about as cheap as it has traded over that period of time. I don't think the question is so much. I mean, it's, it's optically cheap and you're probably getting the right odds for a bet on it just continuing to do roughly what it has done or maybe just a little bit worse than that. If it does that, you're going to make out really well in this position. If there are material changes to it, then all bets are off and who knows. But I think it's a good opportunity potentially to grab something that is spectacular because the upside is, is huge. If it does go back to doing what it had been doing and you get some of those other bets paying off, the risk reward is good. You sort of, the risk, if anything, has sort of been priced into it here. And so I think that it's a, I like the position. I like a few of these sort of opportunities just for that reason that you know, where previously they had a lot of, there was a lot of, you had to be right on what the underlying business did because you, you were paying up for it. Now the valuation is to the other side. You've got this opportunity. Nobody really knows what's going to happen, but at least you're sort of, you're getting the right odds to take the bet. 
you know, I, I came up with this, uh, what is it worth? And I said between 250 and 350. And you can really make an argument that that range is just not, not wide enough. But do you dare putting some numbers on how you look at the intrinsic value for BABA? It's too hard. I, I do think that you can look at it on a, on a ratio basis. It's as cheap as it's been in the last five years. It's clearly the underlying business is spectacular because it's got massive returns in equity. It's growing incredibly quickly. They've got lots of other little businesses that aren't even included in that that are still burning cash that might be opportunities down the road. All of those things like the cloud is very early days still. And it's, that's been a monster business in the States for Google and AWS and for Microsoft as well. So I like the opportunity. The thing that you've got to get comfortable with is the regulatory regime. That's true everywhere in the world. This one might be a little bit more arbitrary and a little bit more aggressive. But then, you know, I think regulatory regimes global are pretty arbitrary and pretty aggressive too. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Again, I'm, I'm trying to be my own devil's advocate. So not only with my good friend Toby, I actually try to, to take myself down if I, if I can. I guess one of the things where I look differently today here in Q3 2021 than I did in Q1 2019, whenever I, I built the, the initial position, which was at the time, it was, it was, I think it was in like 7% or something like that. So it was, it was a quite significant bad format portfolio. I think where I looked at this differently was that I really looked at them having this massive moat in e-commerce. You know, they, they have this, their own ecosystem, like you have to go to, it might sound odd that it can be a mode that you have to go to the website and you can't find it anywhere else. So let me, let me just tell you a bit more uh, what I mean by that, because for instance, like Baidu, like called the Google of China, right? So, so what Alibaba is doing is it actually blocks Baidu's spiders from indexing of both uh, Taobao and Tmall, which is the two primary sites. And so you actually have to go directly into Alibaba to, to buy. And they have the whole ecosystem around it where you need to enter the ecosystem. And then it's very easy to buy and it's very convenient for you to, to make any purchase. And that also makes search a lot more valuable. That makes the advertising dollars go up really quickly because it's very efficient for Alibaba. And I saw what Tencent were doing with their ecosystem. And it seemed to me that it made sense there would be like this duopoly. And it would be really, really hard to get into that market. And then Hindu comes in. Like in this year, they're probably going to sell more than JD.com. Not more than Alibaba, which is still a significant first. But like I was surprised how fast that happened. And so... I guess one of the concerns I have with this pick still, I see great value. But one of the concerns I have is just the disruption that I see in Chinese habits and how I, you know, I've never seen that coming with, with Pinduoduo. So just one more thing to be cautious about and look out for if you want to, to invest in this. I can ask you one question, Toby, about this, because this has been like a, it looks like a falling knife. It looks ugly whenever you look at how the price has, has moved here this year. I read this book by Steven Schwartzman. I think the book was called What It Takes. And he talked about building Blackstone and talked about how he made money in Blackstone. And he talked about how he would never catch a falling knife. He would always look for the bottom, then want to see at least a 10 to 15 increase from any button before he would make a position because otherwise it could get really, really ugly. And you would pay a, a high opportunity cost from having to wait, even if you think the intrinsic value is, is on your side. Do you think there's anything to that? Is that something you looked into at all? Just curious to hear your thoughts on that. The way that you can deal with it is by, you know, you combine some sort of momentum measure. I don't know that it necessarily changes the, you know, so you look at, when I say momentum, you just, like you say, it bounced up from some 
some point, it's not still falling. I think that statistically across a number of positions, it doesn't really improve your chances or it doesn't really improve your returns on a basket of positions. I'm sort of valuation only. I don't really care so much what the stock price is doing because these things bounce too. They can bounce really hard and really high and then you miss your opportunity. I think you sort of you look at a stock price chart and it's joined together in time and it looks like it's got this sort of momentum and movement to it. But really what it is is just people transacting at different prices. And so you've got you get the opportunity that you have based on the market price where it is and what your assessment of the value is. And then your timeline is long enough. Like if you're thinking in a three to five year, 10 year timeline, does it really matter whether you get it here or up 30% or down 30%? Probably not. So I think you just take your opportunities where, where you find them. So you don't worry so much about where you think it's going to be in the future, in the short term. You just buy it here. And then if you're worried about it continuing to fall, don't, don't buy as much as you want. Buy half a position or a third of a position. And then if it bounces 10 or 15%, and that's your signal to buy the whole position. And if it falls another 30%, then you, know, you can buy a little bit more and you, maybe you go to a half position at that point. I think it's kind of impossible to know. You just got to look at the odds that are offered at each stage and make your decision based on that rather than where you think the stock price is going to go. Makes sense. And what does he know, Seymour Schwarzman, <laughs> just because he built Blackstone? He's a, <laughs> he's a private equity guy too. I mean, right. he probably quite a lot, but he's primarily a private equity guy. You know, he's, I don't think that he's doing that when they're buying things privately. They don't go in and say, what price are you going to offer? And they say, well, it's, <laughs> right. it's a billion. And then they go back next time and he says, what price are you going to offer? And they say, 500 million. He says, oh my God, it's... Now it's, the price, it's, right. it's a falling knife. Yeah. I can't buy it here. I'm going to come back and when, it, when it's at 600 million or when it's 575 billion that I'm going to buy, that's a 15% bounce. Exactly. Cool. I'll let you go here, Toby. But before I do, I would like to give you an opportunity to, to tell a bit more about where people can find you, what else you're doing other than being on this podcast. Yeah, I run two ETFs. The first one is called the Acquirers Fund. The ticker is ZIG. It's long and short. US domestic companies, deep value. And I run a small and micro version of it that's just long only and a little bit more diversified called Deep, D-E-E-P. I also have a podcast called The Acquirers Podcast and a website called acquirersmultiple.com. And I'm on Twitter at Greenback. It's a funny spelling, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. And I've written some books. Most recent one is The Acquirers Multiple, which came out in 2017. It's uh, available in all good bookshops, including Amazon. That's amazing. Uh, and so for the rest of you out there listening to this, or perhaps you're looking at this on YouTube, make sure to, to subscribe or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever you are you're listening to this. All right, guys, that was all that we had for you for this week of the MSS Podcast. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.